Should the state step in and take over when a school district performs poorly for years? That's what we're going to talk about today on The Citizen Stewart Show. Welcome to The Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America, where we dive deep into the top headlines and add new perspectives about our schools and our democracy. I'm your host, Chris Citizen Stewart, Chief Influencer at EdPost, a media platform focusing on educational opportunity for every child in America. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Ravi Gupta, a former Obama staffer and former superintendent of a network of charter schools in the South. Ravi, welcome back. How are you doing, man? I am good. You know, always great to come back from a long weekend, Thanksgiving, time with the fam. How about you? You know, like uh, we don't do enough resting in this world. So so I'm good. Like, you know, I take that back. Ravi, you do a lot of like play hard, live hard type of things, you know, like our, what, what is it? Work hard. Party hard or something like that. I don't know what they call it. Yeah, I'm not much of a partier, but I am definitely a... uh, a man who knows how to take a break. I'll put it that way. It feels like you you pursue recreation with the same level of passion that you pursue, like your work, like your day work. Yes, actually, I'm I'm writing. I'm finishing something right now this year, but next year I'm, my plan is to write a book about that very subject. Okay, so this is what I need from you, just because you know this show is about me. It's called the Citizen Stewart Show, so this should be about what I need and what I want. Yes. At my age, I, I looked at this program that you have that you know people pay monthly to do outrageous kind of health things. Oh my God, how did you get your hands on this? You don't have any old people in there. You, you, you got all young bucksters who want to run like the, the, the Iron Man and all that. You need kind of like a, you know... A post midlife version of that that is a little bit more low impact, right? You know, we all want to be healthy, Ravi. It can't just be all for the young people. There's no requirement that you do any amount of the workouts. They're just suggestions. Yeah, but if you don't, there's a lot of shaming. I understand, right? None. People will explain. I'm I'm pretty encouraging every step of the way. <laughs> well, whatever. I don't believe you, but um, moving on. I want to ask you about a couple <laughs> of things that you won't care about, but I just want your quick opinion about, right? <laughs> Good just start. go through you a couple of quick ones, right? Let's do it. So the first one is schools in California are now going to require classes on recognizing fake news. Do you care about this? <sighs> I do. I have so many mixed feelings. Give me your opinion first. No, I want you. You're the educator on the show, man. I mean, like, listen, the only reason I ask the question is because people keep saying we layer too much on schools. I would instantly say yes to this. To me, yes, of course. Teach kids how to think and how to, you know, decode their world. But educators will say back to you, you know what? We've got like 80 other thousand things that we're, that you guys keep saying, hey, here's one more thing to teach. Yeah, I, I think this would be part of a like, you know, whether it's history or civics, we've had that conversation, like what we call it or whatever, current events. I would make this part of current events discussions. It's just become so hard to talk about anything that has any semblance of controversy around it politically. And when the adults can't agree on these subjects, it becomes really hard to put it into schools because then the schools become a site of a tug of war. So in my school, yes, if I'm a teacher in a district and I'm you know, worried about self-preservation, I would be a little bit worried about touching anything around current events. For me, I think, honestly, this could be considered to be like the black belt of literacy, period. So like if you're going to teach reading and how to read for years, like eight to 10 years or whatever, maybe literacy is like at the top of the pie, like media literacy is at the top of the pie. Somewhere in high school, you go, okay, now you can read 
Now can you decipher the information? All right. So second thing, because there's going to be three things. Second thing is there have been news reports that by 2025, I want to say it is, or maybe uh, a little bit later than that, there's gonna we're going to approach this thing called singularity. This is what it is for people listening. Singularity is the point at which AI will arrive at its point of sentience. Well, it will become thinking for itself. So if you can think of a being that's not human, that is embedded in all human systems, that starts to think for itself and is vastly more intelligent than any human being on planet Earth. Um, do you care? <laughs> do you care, Robbie? I care, care deeply. Yeah. I did a, I did an episode just this past week for Lost Debate, which I know is my favorite type of sentence. Of <laughs> I just did a show I on talk this. About the many, yeah, I just did a show on it. I did, a, I did a whole thing on the open AI stuff. People can go to the Lost Debate feed to listen to that. But yeah, I do think this is very serious. I think that it was made all the more uh, urgent last week when the chief scientist for OpenAI uh, led a failed insurrection based on what it seems, we don't really know for sure, but what seems like his serious misgivings about the pace of the technology and the commercialization of it. So I'm very concerned. What's your answer? Do you have an answer to it? Or are you thinking about regulation or anything like that? I think our ability to collectively do anything about this is nearly zero given the amount of money that there is to be made and the amount of national security stakes involved for different countries, you know, going their own way and developing this technology as fast as they possibly can. So my my biggest focus is just how individuals can do the best they can to cope in an environment like this. And I think there's one of two routes. One is be one the one percent or point one percent that somehow is at the you know, table making decisions around and utilizing AI in the ways that, you know, where you capture the gains or find a job that is as AI proof as it possibly can be. You know, those are the only two options as I see them. I, I, I hope I'm wrong. I hope that our, we're collectively able to ward off some of the problems about this stuff. But when, when has that been true on technology recently? We, like, we, you know, we've had how many hearings about Meta and Instagram and TikTok and all that, and nothing really has been done. Some would argue nothing should be done. Every technology that comes along that moves us forward a lot has the people who show up right away and say, this is going to be terrible. Like something's going to happen here really bad for humanity. And then there's the kind of optimist who basically say, no, this is going to make life a lot easier. You're going to have to cook less. You're going to have to do, you know, it's going to take you less time to wash your car. And, you know, so right now, the way that we live our lives right now is the sum total of years and years and years of convenience building, right? Like we can have food in 30 seconds. We can have food delivered to our door. We can just jump on a phone and answer a million questions that we would have had before that we would have had to research. So everything is faster, but it's so, it's kind of weird though. It's not helping us be more productive. I don't think it's, it's, it, there's something happening with it, but I, I don't know yet. But on this one, I am scared of singularity. Like I am fine with AI as long as it's under control of us. But at the moment that it starts thinking for itself and it's smarter than any human being, that's that's a movie. I'm sure that has been a movie. So if you're listening to this and you're like, Chris, that already was a movie, uh, let me know. This is your producer here. The movie Chris is looking for is 2014's Transcendence, starring Johnny Depp. 19% on Rotten Tomatoes. Okay, back to the show. The last thing I want to ask you about is an old man question. This is like a Gen X question to ask you. There's something right now called zombie malls. 
These are malls that used to be thriving malls in thriving suburbs. It was a fixture of American life. I saw E.T. at the mall. I cut school and went to the mall on a bus and saw E.T. and bought albums and, you know, whatever. The mall was a place to go. It was a central figure in kind of like suburban life in the United States. And now there's many that are sitting empty. And this for me, I'm only asking this question because this for me is a symbol of other things. Like we talk about we're losing our way of life. We're losing things that matter. We talk that way a lot about schools, like, you know, and in education, there are the people that feel very traditional about how schools should be and whatever. Do you ever think we're moving too fast into a direction where we're dropping things like, for instance, I'll give you just a couple, Amazon killed Black Friday for me. I used to go out and shop at one in the morning to get that TV or to get that, you know, that Game Boy for my kids and all that. It was an experience. You have to like experience once in your life standing in line in 20 below degree weather at a Best Buy just so you could get the DS for your kids or something like that. Amazon killed that. Amazon's a great invention, but now retail stores are going to sit empty. Now, do you think sometimes we move too fast into innovation and we don't think about the cultural repercussions? Well, I, you know, I think like the mall itself, you know, people said killed Main Street. Uh, you know, people said that about malls. They said that about Walmart. And so Amazon's killed the malls. And this is just what happens. We will preserve them in the way that there are many Main Streets that exist. And, and there will continue to be some malls like the one in your great state that you took me to and trapped me inside of for 48 hours. <laughs> the mall of America. See, what's more American than that? <laughs> and you have American dream yeah. here in New Jersey, which is kind of a copy of what you guys have. And, and they're changing, right? Like, what does it mean to be a mall is different than it we used to be. Now they put more, you know, amusement park rides and sporting, you know, facilities and stuff. So they're adapting the malls. You know, like American Dream is like a hockey rink and a basketball court mm -hmm. and a surf wave pool, which is amazing. So I think they adapt. I also think like I I can be nostalgia for it, but I think nostalgia is such an unhelpful emotion because there's nothing you could do. You can't force people to go to the mall, right? So I do think that there will be like with anything, just like arcades came back recently, you know, mm -hmm. there will mm -hmm. be a nostalgia tour on some of this stuff. And I do think that there will be, I bet my prediction is in our lifetime, we will see 80 style malls that people will go to get the sort of 80s aesthetic. This sounds like a business idea. <laughs> like now. Yeah. And I think it um, would be really pr freaking cool. Like, yeah. I, I think I would I would go to that. I go to arcades myself. Like when I go to London, I often go to this arcade that's there where you little bit, you just get like, you know, the equivalent of quarters and you play games that existed in the, in the nineties and I kick teenagers asses and all the games because they don't they don't know they don't know how to play these games, Chris. Oh Jesus, here we so, go. <laughs> good, good I will time. say this much on this one, and then we can move on. The Robert Putnam stuff sticks in my mind about what happens when people stop joining communal activities. We used to have very strong like Knights of Columbus and PTAs and bowling leagues and uh, lodges and conventions and the Masons. My grandfathers were, you know, in the Masons, and this is what helped people bind together. They were together after work on doing other things. And then that built like uh, that major school safer, for instance, right? Like a lot of school safety stuff is the result of the PTAs crumbling, right? And the, 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 the absence of parents in schools made a big difference. You start layering those on top of each other in this new generation with their Tinder dating and they're sitting in their house eating <laughs> individual meals by themselves. And the lionization of the introvert and the lionization of the, the soul person at a time where American loneliness is at an all-time high. People are more lonely than they've ever been. Men, especially, are the loneliest they've ever been. Now, this is really weird because with women, 
single women without children are the happiest people in the United States. <laughs> I don't know what that says, but like the, the happiest people in the United States are single women over 30 who are childless. That exact same demographic of men are among the most suicidal. You know, no kids, no family, just out there on their own. There's no bowling league. There's going to be no no arcades, no malls, no collective experience. So anyways, Let's jump in a little bit. I want to talk quickly about two uh, listeners who sent us email. So I'll just do this really quickly. We did a show on the Israel-Hamas war, and our question, our central question is, how do we teach that to young people in a way that is not political, but is educational? How can we like uh, create a unit for children to learn about that, especially in a country like the United States, where we have so many different kinds of kids from so many backgrounds? A listener named CR suggests that approaching the teaching of current Israel-Hamas wars is an opportunity to impart empathy to students, particularly those in eighth grade and up. CR acknowledges that everyone has personal biases that they can bring with them uh, regarding human history, but we need to emphasize and foster like empathy and understanding among students and a better treatment of one another for a better future. The proposed lesson plans that CR sends us really talk about early history, exploring various groups' actions and how they have dehumanized each other, and highlight the importance of understanding the historical context, including the Zionist movements, the mandate for Palestine, and the events leading up to the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. So thank you very much, CR, for that. Robbie, I don't know if you want to respond to that at all, but, you know, it's pretty much, you know, on the nose, good advice from a listener. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think he's definitely on the right track. I mean, you, you know, I think it's the deeper you get, the more sources you give students, the more primary sources people interact with, the less you have to buy on other people's interpretations of events and you allow kids to make up their own minds. I love the emphasis on empathy, specifically, to be explicit about things like empathy and peace, teachings around peace and that stuff. So I love that. Uh, the second listener is Andrew uh, Rabinal. I hope I'm saying this right, Andrew, who's catching up on previous shows and uh, admits that he's got a couple more to catch up on, but wanted to send us some preliminary feedback on our, our shows that we did on standardized testing and uh, school closings. He says, per your conversation on standardized testing, it made me think of a newer release by Dr. Bettina Love, her book, Punished for Dreaming, How School Reform Harms Black Children and How We Heal. He says, particularly, there's a chapter on standardizing, God, these big words that philosopher <laughs> type of people use, carcerality. Standardizing carcerality is a chapter in this book that is not meant for mere mortals. Uh, he says, uh, also our show with uh, Dr. Cole mentioned school closure and organizing against them, which made him think we should read the book. Dr. Eve Ewing's book, Ghost in the Schoolyard, Racism and School Closings on Chicago's South Side. You both may be familiar with these books and have read them already, but if you haven't, I highly recommend them. If both of, the, of you have read these books, I'd love to know your thoughts and your views. I respond to Andrew and let him know that we had, that I interviewed Dr. Love, Dr. Bettina Love, about her book. I've been critical of her work in the past, but we've had uh, calm and good civil conversations about it. Her book, I think, is wildly thematic and not necessarily what I would consider to be an education book or a book about improving education. It's very thematic and sociologist uh, in its take on things <laughs> and, and isn't really about how we have better schools that teach kids how to actually read, do math, and those other things. Andrew, thank you so much. And for everybody else listening, continue to send us thoughts, how we can make the show better, and any topics 
With that, let's jump in because the central question that we want to attack today is do school takeovers or district takeovers, state takeover of school districts, do they work? And, you know, what do we mean by work and what purpose do they serve? This stems from the fact that there's a recent kind of high profile takeover of the Houston Independent School District in Texas, largest school district in Texas. It's been taken over by the state. The state uh, has stepped in to replace the school board. I don't know if it's replaced, but remove the school board and the current superintendent to replace them with a interim leadership or governance structure that allows them to do two things. One, take handle of the district itself so that they can make needed changes to improve you know, outcomes for kids. And the second thing is to designate them as a district of innovation in the state of Texas, which allows them a lot of freedom to get out of some of the state bureaucratic rules to try new things, the district back on course. Of course, there's been, these are never popular. There's been a lot of pushback locally um, of parents, community members, and others about being taken over by the state. There's been questions about what criteria is used. Like Houston is not the worst performing district. It doesn't have the worst performing schools. And in some cases has the best performing schools in the state. So why was this district taken over and singled out as a question for many people locally? And what's the goal? Like what's going to happen? Because it doesn't have the worst schools. In Texas, it has some of the worst schools. It also has some of the best schools in Texas. And in some ways they're outpacing the state. So Ravi, I just, you have had, had experience. I have written about takeovers, but you have experience uh, in more than one place with takeovers. What's been your kind of opinion about them? Yeah, well, let me, if, if, if I may, let me add a, a couple of just layers onto this Houston thing that I just find really puzzling. So they use this law to take over the Houston district, right? Now it's being framed as like Republican legislature versus a democratic city which is how I always saw it because I helped elect some of the Democrats who, who run that, including the Harris County judge, who's the executive of Harris County, where the Houston schools are. And she's had one battle after another with the Republicans who've tried to take away her power to do everything, including COVID, dealing with floods, to, to expanding voting access and all that. So there was like a history of taking away their sovereignty. But this law, at least according to the reporting from Texas Tribune and Texas Monthly that I could find, stems from a 2015 change that was actually pushed by a local state legislator named Harold Dutton, who is an African-American Democrat who represents Northeast Houston, who just, from what I can tell, just really hates the performance of the Houston Independent School District. And he has been a champion of this takeover from day one and has been cheering it on ever since. So I found that an interesting wrinkle. That was not what I expected. Uh, that is not, I mean, and kudos to the reporting. I mean, which part of that do you find interesting though? Well, just the way that it's being framed nationally. And when I, so if you read a New York Times article about it or a Washington Post article about it, it yeah. frames it in the way of just, the um, the commissioner of education and Greg Abbott versus the district. But what I'm interested in is what's going on with Harold Dutton that he you know is representing this district and seems to be relatively on fire about this. I think it has something to do with you know the fact that this is a district that was given a B rating, and you'd say, all right, a B rating, like okay, that like that's no reason to take over a district, but half of second and third graders cannot read at grade level. And more alarmingly, only one in five students who graduate from the Houston Independent School District go on to get a, uh, a two or four year college degree. Now, 
like that, those statistics are not that dissimilar to most urban uh, school districts around the country. But at the same time, it, depending on where you sit, like we should be urgent about anything. I come away from the genesis of this kind of a split decision. And I say this because I think that Harold Dutton, based on the surface, has real reasons to be very concerned about the direction of things in Houston. At the same time, the state appears to be using a massive double standard in uh, usurping Houston's power. The law that Dutton wrote triggers when any school district with one campus fails to meet the state accountability standard five years in a row. So one campus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 200,000 students. Yeah. Right. So that just means any big school district can be right. taken over by the state. Right. And at the same time, this commissioner of education, this guy, Mike Morath, this was also some great reporting from Texas. Uh, it's either the Texas Tribune or Texas Monthly. On 17 occasions, the state superintendent has waived the requirement that charter schools, and you and I like charter schools, we tend to support them generally. On 17 occasions, he's waived the requirement that charter schools meet a basically similar standard. And in certain cases, and one, you know, the, the one school that they're pointing to in Houston, the school Wheatley High School, is the one that they're using for the state takeover. Six miles north of it is the Easton Jensen Neighborhood School, which is part of the Texas College Prep Academy Network. That school had only posted one year of results and it got a 48 out of 100, so a failing grade. The state waived that requirement so that that network could expand. So waived that failure. And they've done this repeatedly. They did it when the state appointed charter school board recommended that they do not approve a waiver for KIPP Dallas-Fort Worth, which was having struggling academic performance. And Marath, the state superintendent, also waived that requirement for them so that they could expand. So like, look, we, you, like we got to call balls and strikes. Like we see them, although I am generally sympathetic to high performing charters and good charter environments, this, this seems like they're bending rules for charters that aren't meeting requirements. And it seems that they're punishing traditional school districts that have an impossible standard, honestly, like I, I, the, the results from the district are really concerning, like, like that is concerning, but the standard being used, which is no school that is failing feels like, like the outcome was predetermined. Yeah. I'm looking at some of the background on Houston. The district outperforms the state in academic progress. It outperforms the state or matches the state on four-year high school graduation, outperforms the state on ACT scores. By a big clip, it outperforms the, the state on ACT college readiness rates, AP course enrollment or participation, and eighth grade algebra pass rate and other AP courses. Matches them basically in AP science, matches the state in that so, you know, in a lot of ways, it's kind of weird to have a district that does better than the state and have the state take it over sometimes. So I can imagine taking over that school, though, that you mentioned, right? Like that school that you mentioned has like the ridiculously bad, you know, scenario. But if you look at some of the best schools in Houston, they're producing at a very high level. Why would you take those over and do anything, put them under any other regime than what they're under now? Why wouldn't you just go after the schools that are getting these crappy results, which are mostly impacting the kids that are the worst off. 
right, in the worst parts of town, why not go after those? Seems like more more smart and doable. And and I do I do want to get to your your original question, which is the other takeovers that I've witnessed. But before I do that, I'll just kind of finish the conversation on this Houston stuff, which is they appointed so Mike Morath is the state superintendent commissioner or whatever. He appointed a guy named Mike Miles, so the two Mikes. Mike mm-hmm. Miles is the <laughs> state-appointed superintendent for Houston. Now, this guy is really fascinating. You may have met him. I, I don't think I've ever met him. He was a former Dallas superintendent. He founded a, a group of charters, which I had never heard of, called Third Future Schools. He was a um, He's a military veteran. He seems like a guy who's got a lot of accomplishments and a lot of experience. Like, like I have no... I have no qualms with this guy's experience whatsoever. And and I would say, and I'm trying to like honestly call this like I'm seeing it from just the reporting. He what I like about him is that he certainly brings a lot of urgency. Like mm-hmm. he came he came on board and he's setting targets, which is a 15-point performance over I forget how many years, five years, I think, which is actually a lot if you look at the data that like if you try to compare that to other takeovers. Um, that would that would definitely make it an exceptionally strong takeover in you know in the very very upper echelons of state takeovers. So he's been really urgent, but he he's been definitely pushing some shall I say controversial solutions to this issue. And I'll read you some of them. So he's targeting feeder schools to high schools that are underperforming, which I actually think is an, is a smart strategy, right? Not don't just target the high school because it's really hard to turn around to high school. So all right, if we're putting things in his column, I like that. Number one, higher teacher pay, $85,000 on average versus $61,500 for people going to those underperforming schools. All right, also in his direction, which is the opposite of what happens in a lot of districts where the higher performing you are, you go to the fancier high-performing schools. All right, so far, so good. Bonuses for high-performing teachers, no problem with that. Now, here's where people are starting to take issue with him. Unruly students are removed from the classrooms, and there's this is where the reporting is very murky and depending on who you are, it's being portrayed in different ways, but it is being portrayed like he's closing libraries, using libraries as student discipline centers and then repurposing librarians for other work around the schools. And he is saying like the the part about reassigning libraries is beyond dispute, librarians and, and libraries. And we can come back to that. That certainly is a politically incendiary act. Let me let me just stop there for a second, because I like to call things what they are. It's not a politically incendiary act. It's stupid. If you look up the definition of stupid, this would qualify the definition of stupid. And see, the thing about reform and reformers for so long is that they don't learn from the whelps that they take over time, even though they're data-based and data-driven and they supposedly do learn and they do want to do to systems what they've learned over time. If you want to fix a state, a district, a school, whatever, the fewer number of things that you have to deal with, the better, right? So you don't pick stupid fights. You don't pick fights that don't do anything for you, right? Like Because the public constantly coming for you Anything that riles up the troops against you or whatnot is just a distraction from the real thing you're trying to do. So if you want to turn around a school, you want the the minimal, like changing the name of a school as you're trying to fix it brings you community feedback that you don't need, right? Like So, so do the fewest number of things, like focus on the fewest number of things. But why give the public and the community and the people who organize the community things to work with that are going to cause you problems. Yeah. I mean, I, we're a hundred percent in agreement on that. Like there's a debate to be had about what the average librarian is doing in a school where most of the kids can't read, 
right? Like one could make an argument like, hey, like if, if, if a really visionary principal showed up to that school and said, hey, librarian, one, how many students have come in here today? None. Okay, well, come with me. Let's create a small reading group. No problem with that, right? Like, and then we'll get to the point where we, we build a culture where the kids want to walk through that door and then you're back to being a librarian again. Like a principal who's like really visionary, has the buy-in of the community, can handle the parent backlash to that decision, has the staff on their side, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of things, maybe decides to do that thing. But I think on, on year one, that headline, that move, even if, and I'm, this would be giving him credit that this is actually based on any sound basis of evidence, like, it just seems like it's just asking for trouble. But okay, a couple other things. Every teacher has to reapply for their jobs in those schools, which definitely caused a lot of parents to get pissed off. And then a uh, shift of administrative responsibilities from teachers to, I guess, some of these staff that are repurposed, like potentially librarians, right? So that the photocopying and stuff like that is done by other people so that teachers have more time to provide remedial work. I'll say this, like we could spend all this time debating each of those things. Some of them are, I think are actually have basis in evidence. And then some of them, as, as we've acknowledged, are very puzzling and definitely going to overwhelm his ability to do the rest of that kind of stuff. But yeah, it gets to like, do these things work, right? That's the question. Do do these takeovers tend to work is the big, big question here. So I know you're going to talk a little about your experience with takeovers in other places, but this is a question I would put on the table about whether they work. First of all, the research doesn't say that they work. The research says, here, here's this from Brookings. The state of Texas recent takeover of Houston school district, despite not being the lowest performing in the state, highlights a nationwide trend of state takeovers of school districts across various regions. Low academic performance and fiscal challenges typically justify these takeovers with COVID-19, the COVID-19 pandemic exacerbating these issues. Research conducted between 2010 11 school year and 15 uh, six year indicates that on average state takeovers do not improve student academic performance with outcomes varying among districts and disproportionately harming majority black communities. While takeovers can boost state revenues and expenditures per pupil, they don't necessarily benefit districts serving majority black student populations. It goes on to say, you know, this is Beth Schuler, professor at UVA, who has studied this. A lot of her studies are, are you know, often reported on. But basically, you know, objective information doesn't say that this is one of the interventions that we push. A lot of like the reform minded people push. We push some interventions that are faith based and some that have real evidence behind them. School takeovers, district takeovers don't just like school turnarounds have a very murky record. Like turnarounds are not something everybody can do. Right. Like like not everybody can do, I, you know, I have a good friend, Sharif el -Meki. Many of you who listen to me know him. He was very successful with school turnarounds in places where other turnarounds had failed. You know, he's able to turn around long, chronically underperforming schools. But that's just not something everybody can do. Not everybody's cut out for that work. Here's the one question I ask you, though, Ravi. If there's a basis for a state to take over a district because that district is not living up to what it could possibly do, does that mean that the federal government should use that same thing to take over states when an entire state is not living up to what it could possibly do? We have entire states that have a worse record than Houston. So should we take over states? Should we have state takeovers? Like, should the federal government step in under, under the same rationale that states use to take over a district? Should the federal government take over states? I don't know, Arkansas, maybe, or 
you know, Mississippi to some extent. I don't know. Uh, we did, didn't we didn't we go in down to Little Rock and essentially do something like that? Uh, not because of the performance. That's a different question. We can come back around to that question later. I love the report that you talk about, by the way. And and um, you mentioned Beth Schuler is also Melissa Arnold Lyon and Joshua Bleberg. This is uh, October twenty fourth from Brookings. Really good stuff. And it, and it, and actually, what's interesting about it is the period of time that they study the thirty five takeovers that were all within the period of time I was running schools. So I had a front row seat. I was traveling the country looking at a lot of these places. And what's fascinating is, number one, like you talk about, the takeovers by and large weren't successful. And number two is there were some outliers. And so I think there's two questions. Why weren't the vast majority unsuccessful? And then two, is there something about the outliers that we can learn from? I would say... On the first part, you know, I was running schools in Nashville, but I was also going down to Mississippi, which means I was staying in New Orleans a lot, which had a, and I also spent a lot of time in New Orleans, which had its own version of a takeover. They're just very different than a lot of other places. And a lot of the Nashville people were involved in Memphis, which was a huge takeover that had a hybrid takeover approach because takeovers tend to have two models. One is the district comes in and directly runs the district, like what's happening in Houston, or they step in and they basically incentivize charter operators and others to come run individual schools for them, which is the New Orleans method. And Memphis did a hybrid approach where they had the ASD, the Achievement School District, that had some direct run schools, and then they had networks run some of their schools. So you had that. You had Nashville, which has just been in a perpetual battle with the state. There's no takeover, but they're constantly trying to keep the state out of their business. And then you had New Orleans, which because of Katrina was charterized basically overnight, right? And then those are like three examples, right? And what do we learn from that? Well, Memphis has been viewed as a failure by most. Now, the people who are involved in it would have big issues with the way I'm characterizing it. I'm just saying this is by their own goals. I was in all those meetings in the beginning when they were trying to like, they brought us to Memphis and they were like trying to sell the bigger networks that were bigger than us to go down there, et cetera. There's, they did not meet their goals and they burnt out all the people who went through there, you know, almost to a person, none of them are still there. And I think that was a reflection of the waiting for Superman era of education where I was part of this larger like momentum that thrust a lot of hopefully well-intentioned do-girders to try to do impossible things. And we burnt ourselves out. Like we were one-upping each other to, to set more and more ambitious goals. And a lot of us fell short of those goals, you know? And I, and I say us on purpose, I'm not throwing tomatoes here. Like there's almost to a person, just networks have done well or not, but almost none of us did exactly what we said we would do. And the ASD is an example of that. And we can go through all of it, but I think it's like, this shit is just really, really hard. The politics is really tough, but then the operational stuff is really hard. Like, like turning around one school is really hard, Never mind a whole district. Now, what do we learn from the outliers, though, Chris? The outliers, according to Brookings, which makes sense to me based on my experience, are New Orleans and Lawrence, Massachusetts. Well, what's going on in those two places? Well, New Orleans, which you know a lot about, that's like a hard-to-replicate environment. Like, you needed an act of God, a tremendous travesty, and you needed perfect timing so that you could time, basically set the laser beam of like the full weight of talent that education reform for better or worse at that period of time had was kind of sent to this place. I saw it with my own eyes. And because of the, like the disaggregated nature of it, 
the cream, I think, rose to the top. There's some really, really good networks there. And you had a couple of leaders who were smart and well-intentioned enough to adjust course as they made a lot of mistakes. So they realized, okay, we weren't getting SPED right, so they created SPED Collective. They weren't getting student transportation and selective emissions right, so they created a common application process. You know, they, they just did, they had one leader after another who, and, and a really strong civic glue where they basically recreated the district from scratch, but in a better way and were able to, to achieve jaw-dropping results with a lot of criticism. And actually, I think it all worked. Like the criticism helped inform better schooling and policies. Like it was ugly. You know how ugly it was. It was ugly, but there's a cultural aspect there. I think, you know, with New Orleans, it's a good call out because I think one of the big lessons of New Orleans that makes it hard for state takeovers of districts is that New Orleans had a an amazing talent influx. People don't talk about it that way. I mean, people, if you listen to people on the ground, like there's this whole other narrative about who that was, but there's just no objectively getting around the fact that there was a talent influx and a resource influx that you can't do in every district that you're going to take over by state. No, let me take that back. Actually, if Texas wanted to put together a plan for any district where they were going to just infuse a bunch of talent all at once into one place and make them kind of like do an ops mission on this district, you could probably replicate New Orleans. Now, people listening to this, I do want to stop here just one second and say, I can hear you talking, even as we are talking. <laughs> and when we bring up things like New Orleans, I know what I'm going to hear from you is you're going to I'm going to hear a lot of the narrative about what New Orleans didn't get right, whatever. This is what I want to tell you about New Orleans. Objectively speaking, I went to New Orleans public schools before, long before they were taken over. And I can tell you that on the day before Katrina, New Orleans public school district was the most corrupt school district in the United States. It had the worst performance and the worst number of people that were under FBI investigation, right? The, it, the FBI this, set up in the district. Set up in, in the, the district. district. Set up an office in the district to save them time, travel time, right? And that tells you a lot about where we were before. And now people have selective memories, right? I can tell you this, the charter schools of New Orleans now need a 2.0, 3.0 upgrade. They need to get to the next level of quality. So if you're going to say to me, Chris, those schools aren't great. I'm going to say to you, you're right. They can be much better. Here's what Doug Harris, a researcher at Tulane in New Orleans, who's done a lot of the research on the New Orleans model, he will say that the reforms increased student achievement. They increased high school graduation. They increased college entry rates, college persistence, and college graduation. For high school graduation and college outcomes, the effects are all in the range of 10 to 60% over the New Orleans, uh, where New Orleans stood before the reforms. The people that got the most benefit were the people that were the toughest hit in the previous district. So everything else you want to say, fine, it's open for fair debate. But an objective look at New Orleans is that they're better off than they were before. And it's not an amazing turnaround story. It's a it's a good I think, turn story. I don't know if it's all the way around. It's a good turn story. And now part two of that story has to be upping the level of quality at a time where they don't have the talent influx anymore, right? Like after, you know, matter of fact, they might be suffering some brain drain because they're not the, the hot thing anymore, but everybody wants to go to New Orleans, I think. I want to come back to your experience, but the better, I think, example to look at is Indianapolis. I think in Indianapolis is what it looks like when you get good on a balance of methods and methodologies. They have school improvements within the districts that they're working on. They have innovation schools, which give districts charter-like ability for their schools that they run themselves. And they have charter schools that have a quality focus. 
It's not just like how many we can produce. It's how can we get rid of the ones that aren't doing very well and replace them with ones that are doing better. And over time, you don't hear much about Indianapolis. You really don't. You hear way more, you know, New Orleans is a sexy story. But Indianapolis is probably what good looks like for a balanced reform perspective. Anyways, I'm sorry, I didn't mean yeah. to, to go on about that. But yeah. when you mention New Orleans, no, I, you know what people think and you know what they're going to say. So. I know. And honestly, I, I almost want to do a special episode on New Orleans because I just have a lot of love for the struggle. I, I w used to go down there and I was just constantly inspired by the work that was being done there. And the conversation, it was, it was ugly. You know, Nashville has its own version of ugly, but it was ugly. And I'll say like, you know, a good example is this guy, Ben Markovitz, who started Collegiate Academies, right? Which was originally called Psy Academy, the first school. They took over my high school. There you go. Abramson turned into Psy Academy. He's a, you know, Yale-educated, super smart guy who, from a technical perspective, when I would travel the country and I would visit schools, he was maybe the best school leader I've ever seen in my life. And not only that, but he lived this humility in a way that it, it helped me understand how to lead through crisis. Like he tells the story how he started a ninth grade, which first of all, he started in ninth and went to 12th. And that, that is very hard to do with the, with students who are as behind as the students he had. And he had, he had this idea that cause he learned, he read Lord of the Flies in high school that his kids wouldn't learn Lord of the Flies. And he tells the story about how he, he brought out Lord of the Flies in ninth grade and it just, he couldn't do it. He couldn't pull it off. So he had to box them up. And he talks about how this experience of boxing it up and how devastating that was. And he went through all the different iterations, right? Of like getting things right, getting things wrong, et cetera. But one thing I can say is the biggest criticism people ever give of charters is they don't serve special needs students well. And I would say that Nobody did it better than Ben Markovitz. And in part because he has a daughter, and this is, I'm not just, I'm not outing him. This is written about news stories about him, et cetera, who has a severe special need. It's so severe that actually he had to step down recently as CEO because he couldn't get his daughter the care she needed there. He had to go to New York to get it, right? But he loved running that network. And and I think size and, and Collegiate is a good example. And, and they got some stuff. They did a takeover of yours, they did, they did the takeovers. There was a whole issue of, it might've been your school where like there was a big community backlash because of like the community tradition around it, et cetera. And, and what I saw is a network that, that over time evolved and the new CEO, Jarrell Bryant, who I also had a chance to see as, as the leader of uh, one of the schools that was taken over, I saw him start to assert himself as part of that network and build ties with the community, win them over by running a great school, getting the politics right, taking the arrows, listening to the community. And now he's running that network of schools. That's the next generation, right? Mm -hmm. And what I think we don't get right is often people will, in, in our movement, will push down the Ben Markovitz and say, ah, oh, you just, you know, you like you're, you're a colonizer of the, the student mind or whatever. And like, and they'll just, they'll herald in the Jarrells, right? Which I think we should herald the Jarrells, but forget that, like, not everybody's well-intentioned, but I say like the people I saw down there to a person, to a person were superheroes to me. And I, I just want to shout them out because I, I know that like, there's a whole narrative there. And I just, I have so much love for that group of people who were down there at that period of time. So much love. Well, well, I will say this. New Orleans is a great case when you look at the reformers that came down there. I absolutely agree with your characterization of the, the people that you're talking about who I've met down there. Best of intentions coming to New Orleans to do the work. 
the thing that they got immensely wrong is culture. And thinking that because you went to Yale or because you are this very smart person coming to a place where everybody's supposed to be stupid, that you don't have to abide by local culture in, in some ways that are really, really silly, like renaming schools is really silly in a place like New Orleans. New Orleans is the worst. Uh, I've traveled the entire country. I can't think of a place that's worse to do something like that and to ignore the traditions of kind of like the marching bands, the, the, the music, the culture, all those things. So in that way, reform is like, you know, like a, dating a, a bad kisser with a really good job. Like, you know, um, they, they're really good. <laughs> they're, they're a great marriage prospect, but as a lover, they're just cold fish. That's actually but they get a better though. Like so they get better at the love. Maybe they no. get better, you know, over yeah. time, maybe you make them better. But I mean, that initial spark of not having that initial spark kind of ruins the marriage or, you know, like you have a great job, you are really well educated, blah, 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 blah. But you're just lousy as a, as a lover. And, and, you know, I think that's something that if you think about large takeovers, like by a state or by, you know, that local aspect of a school district, when we talk about state takeovers, are we talking enough about what that does to our theories about local control, all the talking we do about like parents being the ones who really need to hold schools accountable? You know, some in some ways, reformers are talking out both sides of their neck when they support both this kind of parent rights revolution and on the other side, state takeover of your local school district. Those are like two, those things don't go together. They don't go together. This is where I think it goes full circle though. Cause I, I do think that like we were asking that generation and, and a lot of them were volunteering to do the educational equivalent of storming Normandy, right? Like tap dancing and high heels back. Oh, stop right? it. Like they, stop it. They stop were going, it. Anybody who's been to Normandy would tell you to just stop it. But keep going, Robbie. Keep going. I said the educational <laughs> equivalent. Yeah, I said the yeah, educational equivalent. It does not fit, but keep going. I just want to yeah. say that nobody would have gotten that perfectly, right? And I think if they'd gotten the culture right and the academics wrong, you would be hammering them for that too. And, and what, what I could say is they have adapted. You know, they have the marching bands, they have the football teams, they've re, they've a lot of them have backtracked and kept the names of schools. The leadership is more diverse than it certainly was by a long shot when I was down there. I think they listened. They started listening. They got tired of getting their butts kicked over long periods of time, and they started doing something that they had not done from the beginning. Was number one, consider local people to be intelligent listen to what they're saying, listen for what the clues, and don't always think you're the smartest guy in the room with all the the, the, the best answers to everything, because you're not. Even, even though you've been taught that everywhere else you've been in the world, even though you've been an A student your whole life, and you did that whole IV thing somewhere else and whatever, I think that doesn't prepare you for a different type of intelligence that you need when you're going to go into a foreign country, or into a foreign community, or a foreign place. There's this other level of humility and cultural intelligence that you need to have to be considered really intelligent. Like, it's not just I'm a smart guy, it's I'm a smart guy about things like this too, like culture. And I think if I point to somebody, Jamar McNeely, uh, who runs Inspire NOLA schools in New Orleans, I think is the good balance between that because he has not given up anything on quality and the schools needing to like perform good teaching and good instruction. At the same time, he has learned that it just saves him a lot of kind of like headaches by just abiding by the culture. He's from there. Well, he's from Baton Rouge. He's not from New Orleans, but he's from Baton Rouge. He gets the culture part too. And that's the perfect balance. I think Jamar actually has has done what a lot of the reformers there could have done earlier, but it's it's moving that direction, I think, with all of it. Still not perfect, but still a hell of a lot better than it was 
before Katrina. And anybody wants to fight me on that, fight me on it. We 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 can do a whole show on it. We come back, Ravi. Listen, if someone's listening to this and they really want to battle on this particular point, we will bring you on the show. Yeah, I to give your actually, best pitch on this. Let's do it. There is there's there's almost no contentious debate and argument within education that I feel as strongly about that New Orleans is better than it was before Katrina. Absolutely. I, I am, I'm ready for that one. Uh, but yeah, like I, I feel like, okay, like the lessons here, I don't know what they are, Chris. I think they are like, I think the, the, in my opinion, the top down takeovers, especially when the top down comes with control and micromanaging of the takeover, they don't seem to work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If the state takeover in quotes leads to a loosening up that is combined with a really strong time and place momentum for talent and resources and innovation, I'm open to it. Right. But you have to make the case that this time is different, right. Which are the, you know, the most dangerous words in the English language, right? Like what makes your time different? Indiana, you know, Indianapolis, the time was different. New Orleans, the time was different. In Massachusetts, it was different. And that one was interesting because it had to do with the fact that the state had a cap on charters. So there was a lot of talented people who wanted to do the work, like the unlocking potential people who descended upon Lawrence, Massachusetts, kind of in the way New Orleans is just really small too. So they're able to do really good. So you need to be able to say, all right, I'm going to loosen restrictions. We're going to open things up and we've got the talent to do it. Camden, great example of this, like what Paymon did in Camden, right? It's a very similar type of situation. So far successful. I interviewed him on it recently. So here's my final word on all of it. I think that there's some some things at tension here. Number one, I think it's the Colin Powell principle that like if you break it, you own it. So if I was a state chief who was thinking about takeovers, I would really be a little bit gun shy unless I knew I was gonna win. Like unless I like if if I if I had all the data, someone came in my room, some very smart person came and sat down with me and said, Hey, here's the exact context of the school district. Here's all the information you need to know. And it looks pretty probable that we could do something here that like that we're going to win. Then I would start talking about it. Like, let's green light this and let's go forward. I wouldn't do it if I wanted any type of political future on a whim or on a like a, a sense of maybe we could win. I want some pretty good information. I'm just being honest, like, like, Career-wise, I would just be like, give me some information that lets me know we can win this, and then it would be worth the headache of taking it over. So that's number one. Number two, this thing around local context is something that I would put a lot of thinking and effort into to mitigate the things that you can predict are going to be community responses and get that work done long before you do anything else. Like start the, laying the groundwork for, the, for that uh, long before you take a thing over. And the last thing I'll say on the takeover part is take over the least amount that you can take over, right? Leave the great schools alone, hold them harmless in some way, you know, and take over the least number of things. If you don't have to take everything over, take over the smallest number of things because I think your chances of winning increase by not trying to boil the ocean and you know, make some big, you know, kind of splash of it. And two, I mean, you know, on that, on that, like part of winning is knowing what resources you're going to have after, like you can flood the zone with resources while you're there. But then when you leave, if it all falls to crap, when you leave, like how long, that's the Colin Powell principle again, how long do you want to be 
there, right? Like this is going to be a tour of duty. How long do you want to be in Houston? So, so the last point that I'll say though, is not about the state taking things over. It's about the local people, like your school boards and, and you, all of you guys that are going to hit the microphones now at public meetings and start bitching and crying and doing all that stuff on public mics. That is all fantastic and great. And I'm with you because I believe in democracy. I believe in local control and all that, but where the hell were you when you had chronically underperforming schools with the kids who are the least of them in, in generation? after generation going through school A or school B that just, you have known these schools sucked for years and you didn't show up to a microphone. You didn't get out there. You didn't yell. You didn't scream. You didn't stomp your feet. Those kids now, where did they go? Year after year, where did those kids go? Did they just evaporate and disappear? At, you know, 13th grade, you just evaporate and disappear now. It's, It's not, no. Those are the kids that are having the worst possible lives after that particular thing that you ignored for years because this is not going to be popular to say. The majority of you are bougie. You claim community. You claim race. You claim affiliation with the people and all that. You are on average more college educated, doing better with your kids in better schools than anybody else if you are in leadership positions in these cities. So shame on you for only showing up when the state takes your power away when you have lorded over failed schools that have blighted the minds of black and brown children for years, for generations, and as long as it wasn't your kids, you were okay with business as usual. So I don't know if state interventions are the thing, but an intervention is a thing. I don't know what it should be. I can't like, you know, I'm, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I'm not going to say what it should be, but it should be something. Like something has to disrupt a predictable pattern of blighting the minds of kids over generation, generation, generation. I'm not passionate at all about this, though. <laughs> so, Ravi, uh, what's your final word on state takeovers? No, I, I love what you said. I mean, I was I had the same thought when I was looking at these Houston meetings where people are showing up and ripping apart the state and 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 the district. Like in some cases, with really good arguments. And I'm like, I I just hope you you're bringing that kind of energy on an average day. Like when half the kids can't read on grade level, right? And two out of 10 or whatever it was, one out of five don't have two or four year college acceptances in hand. Like, let's get urgent, you know? Let's be urgent no matter who's at the helm. We need a t-shirt that says that. Let's get urgent. <laughs> That's what, I mean, shout out to Building Excellent Schools, man. Linda Brown, Sue Wallace. When I got to the BES fellowship, they had the orange eight by eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper that covered all the windows. And it just said urgency. On every one of them. That wow. was that was how they treated things, you know? Well, I, I appreciate this as always, Robbie. I knew this would be a good kind of like topic to dig in on because you have experience with it. A lot, of, a lot of us, you know, we can be commentators on these things, but I think direct experience is really important. To our listeners, I would say, uh, as always, thank you for sticking with us. We talk about education uh, every week, which in America isn't the sexiest of topics, but it's one of the most important of topics because of what we're going to do for our kids. What we do for our kids is actually what we do for the future and what we do for the future this country. So thank you. Please share the show and subscribe if you haven't already and send us information. Like what's your feedback on this? And I do want to open up this invitation. If anybody disagrees mightily on some of these points, like the thing about New Orleans, which I know is just a powder keg of like an explosive issue to talk about, I am willing to have you on this show so that we can talk objectively about what research tells us, not what we think about things like the New Orleans turnaround, but what research tells us. And I know some of you guys, because I hear from you, are doctoral students. 
And they're my favorite because they are very confident people. <laughs> they are super confident in their understanding of things. So if any of you guys want to come on, please do. I'll let Ravi battle you, though. <laughs> and we will do it objectively. Thank you so much. This has been another episode of The Citizen Stewart Show. We appreciate you as always. The Citizen Stewart Show is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. I'm Chris, Citizen Stewart. You can follow me at Citizen Stewart. You can follow Ravi at Ravi M. Gupta. You can follow all of the Branch podcast at The Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so you can join us every Tuesday for more of The Citizen Stewart Show.